Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah, Georgia, this is Obscure Season 4 in American Tragedy. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, and literary mansplainer-in-chief, Michael Ian Black, just returned from Naples, Florida, where I got into an altercation with Andrew Dice Clay. You can read all about it on my Substack. I'm not going to rehash here. The events that transpired one Friday evening last, but suffice to say, Andrew Dice Clay is a dick. I'm sure he thinks the same of me, but uh, if you look at our two reputations over the years, I would say there's more indication supporting my side of who is the dick than his. That being said, it all worked out fine. He did his shows, I did mine and uh, nobody got hit, which is good because if somebody was going to get hit, it was going to be me. A nearly 70-year-old man wanted to hit me, and I gave him every opportunity to do so, but in the end, he declined to take it. Fine. That's, uh, That's a good thing, I will say. So points to him, points to me, points to all of you for subscribing to this podcast. And not to his. I don't think he has a podcast. Nor, by the way, should he. He's not a well-spoken man. But in fairness, he's not a well man. I mean mentally, physically. I think he's probably fine. So I'm back. I drove uh, home from Florida all day yesterday. Took me the entire day. Naples to Savannah, Georgia. That's hours and hours. And, you know, you got to charge your car if you got an electric car. And I I have one. So, yeah. What are you going to do? Anyway, I'm back now, feeling terrific, 
we've got ourselves a book to read, do we not? I mean, tragedy upon tragedy. Last time, Hortense Briggs, you know, they, they tumbled around in the car and Hortense Briggs found her face to be all bloodied and mottled and she thought, my God, they've sullied my beauty. And what does she do? She goes dashing off all by herself. I mean, look, the kid's in shock. There's no getting around it. She's freaked out. Everybody's freaked out. But nobody else in the car decided to run away, flee the scene. Although, what's his face? Radder, who was driving, was in fact attempting to flee the scene. But he had a good reason. He ran over a girl. Hortense doesn't have nearly as good a reason. But the, the big dramatic question, I think, from last episode to this is, how will this affect the relationship between Hortense and Clyde? Um, we know there's a little girl who's been run over. We don't care about her. Radaru was driving the car. We don't care about him. Hegland and all the others uh, were with them in the car. We don't care about any of them. The only people we have any personal stake in are Clyde and Hortense. And so, therefore, the dramatic question is, what's going to happen to them? So the last thing was she, her one thought as she got out of the car and her face is a bloody mess and she's worried about her looks, her one thought was to reach her own home as speedily as possible in order that she might do something for herself. And uh, as I said last time, tragedy often reveals character and Hortense's character is not looking very good at the moment. So why don't we pick it up? Chapter 19 in American Tragedy. Of Clyde, Sparser, Ratterer, and the other girls, she really thought nothing. So that, now we're, we're still in Hortense's mind, I guess. What were they now? It was only intermittently and between thoughts of her marred beauty that she could even bring herself to think of the injured child. The horror of which, as well as the pursuit by the police, maybe, the fact that the car did not belong to Sparser, oh, Sparser was driving, or that it was wrecked, and that they were all liable to arrest in consequence, affecting her but slightly. Her one thought in regard to Clyde was that he was the one who had invited her to this ill-fated journey, hence that he was to blame, really, those beastly boys, to think they should have gotten her into this and then didn't have brains enough to manage better. So Hortense, looking for someone to blame, blames Clyde for inviting her on a pleasant trip to a hotel to have drinks and go skating around. And how dare he do that if they're just going to run over a girl and crash the car? How dare he and her with her marred beauty? What was she thinking? The other girls, apart from Laura Sipe, were not seriously injured. Well, how many other girls are there apart from Laura Sipe? Two? So Hortense is injured, Laura Sipe apparently is seriously injured, and then the other two girls are not. They were not seriously injured. They were more frightened than anything else. But now that this had happened, they were in a panic, lest they be overtaken by the police, arrested, exposed, and punished. And accordingly, they stood about, exclaiming, Oh, gee, hurry, can't you? Oh, dear, 
We ought all of us to get away from here. here. Oh, it's all so terrible. Until at last, Hegland exclaimed, For Christ's sake, keep quiet, can't you? We're doing the best we can, can't you see? You'll have the cops down on us in a minute as it is. So their plan to get out of this is to stand around complaining. And that's a plan, I guess. Is it a good one? Hard for me to say, having never really participated in any significant criminal enterprises, it's very difficult for me to say how I would react in that situation. Now, I've been in automobile accidents before, and I'm always a good Samaritan when I am. I pull the car over, I get out my insurance card, I make sure the other person is okay, blah 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 But I've never run over any. Oh, I shouldn't say that. I did run over somebody just the one time, though. You're probably wondering, Michael, I don't remember you running over anybody. Well, here's what happened. I was in Los Angeles, and I had rented a car. Basically, every car accident I've ever had has been in Los Angeles. It's just a terrible city to navigate around. And anyway, I'm driving this car in Los Angeles. Uh, There's a a pharmacy on my right, like a Walgreens or something I want to get to. So I'm in the right lane, and I've got a turn to get over to the pharmacy parking lot. And as I, and I'm at a light, right? And the light turns, and as I'm making my way to turn right, a sky and a scooter comes on my right, you know, between me and the curb, and I turn into him, and he goes flying off his scooter, and I hit him, basically. So what do I do? Do I run away? I do not. I get out of the car. I make sure he's okay. He's a little scraped up on the elbow. The police come. And they, 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 an ambulance comes, and they say, are you all right? And he says, yeah, I'm all right. And uh, he refuses medical attention, which I think is actually good for me, because that makes it hard for him to file a lawsuit later. And then I stay with him, and he's looking around for his marijuana that fell out of his pocket, I guess, when he got hit. He's much more concerned about that than he is about his, his elbow. And then I give him a ride to his friend's house, and then I think, well, that was that. You know, that was, a, that was a scary moment, but it's all fine. Then I see my picture on TMZ. Uh, you know, not the homepage because nobody cares about me, but somebody took a picture and it was on TMZ. And then he did end up suing me. It was settled and not for very much money because he wasn't hurt. You know, anyway, that's the one time I ever hit somebody on a car. But I did the right thing, unlike these asshole kids and certainly unlike Hortense Briggs. And then, as if in answer to his comment, a lone suburbanite who lived some four blocks from the scene across the fields, and who, hearing the crash and the cries in the night, had ambled across to see what the trouble was, now drew near and stood curiously looking at the stricken group and the car. Had an accident, eh? he exclaimed genially enough. Anyone badly hurt? Gee, that's too bad. And that's a swell car, too. Can I help any? <laughs> is anybody badly hurt? Apparently, Laura Sipe is. Oh, gee, that's too bad. Anything else I can do? I mean, I guess Laura Sipe's not that seriously hurt. I think that was just a misleading sentence. I mean, if she was seriously hurt, they'd be screaming, get the ambulance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think she's just a little banged up. But he's just sort of standing there with his corncob pipe, hands in gabardine trousers, standing around, tapping his foot, tapping his wingtips on the macadam there, looking around, saying, gee, that's too bad. You turned your car over in such a nice car, too. Anything I can do to help? Clyde, hearing him talk and looking out and not seeing Hortense anywhere and not being able to do more for Sparser 
then stretch him in the bottom of the car. Okay, so Sparsers, <laughs> hurt, seriously, I guess, glanced agonizingly about. For the thought of the police and their certain pursuit was strong upon him. He must get out of this. He must not be caught here. Think of what would happen to him if he were caught, how he would be disgraced and punished, probably. All his fine world stripped from him before he could say a word, really. His mother would hear, Mr. Squires, everybody. Most certainly he would go to jail. Oh, how terrible that thought was. Grinding, really, like a macerating wheel to his flesh. What's a macerating wheel? I never heard of that. You know, macerating just means chewing. So what's a macerating wheel? Let's look it up. Let's crank up the old research machine and see what a macerating wheel is. Macerating wheel. All right. Let's see if we get any images of what a macerating wheel is. And uh, not really getting a lot of pictures of toilets because uh, there's such a thing called macerating toilets. And a lot of pictures of wheels, like caster wheels that you put in the bottom of furniture, you know, to move it around. But nothing that seems like it is a macerating wheel. Let me do a little, let me just do a little, let me ask the chat GPT if it knows. Sometimes chat GPT knows things that I don't know. Chat GPT, what is a macerating wheel? At, and I'll do this, as described in... In American Tragedy. Let's see if ChatGPT knows. Oh, the, apparently uh, in American Tragedy, a novel written by Theodore Dreiser, there is no mention of a macerating wheel. It's possible that you might be referring to a term or concept from a different source or work. Right, well, I guess there's my answer. When it says macerating wheel in the book, that's not at all what it means. How terrible that thought was, grinding really, like a macerating wheel to his flesh. But according to ChatGPT, there is no mention of a macerating wheel. Well, so there's our answer. They could do nothing more for Sparser, and they only laid themselves open to being caught by lingering. So they're just going to leave Sparser? So asking, where'd Miss Briggs go? He now began, oh, I see, he began to climb out then started looking about the dark and snowy fields for her. His thought was that he would first assist her to wherever she might desire to go. So he is thinking of her, and I guess in, a, in what can be described as a somewhat chivalrous manner, although his attitude towards Sparser does not seem to be particularly chivalrous, but maybe men don't need chivalry from other men. I don't know. I don't quite know the rules of chivalry. I am forever being chewed out by my wife for not being chivalrous enough, which really, when she says that, what she means is you're not doing the annoying chore I asked you to do because I don't want to do it. And there are times when that is the case. And I say no when she asks me to do something. If you ask me to do something, that means I reserve the right to say no. If you tell me to do something, apparently I don't reserve that right, but I can still refuse. This is why Andrew Dice Clay wanted to hit me, by the way, because I'm I'm a pedant. Where'd Miss Griggs go? Okay, but just then in the distance was heard the horns and the hum of at least two motorcycles speeding swiftly in the direction of this very spot. 
for already the wife of the suburbanite, on hearing the crash and the cries in the distance, had telephoned the police that an accident had occurred here. And now the suburbanite was explaining, well, that's them, I told the wife to telephone for an ambulance. And hearing this, all these others now <laughs> began to run, for they all realized what this meant. And in addition, looking across the fields, one could see the lights of these approaching machines. They reached 31st and Cleveland together. Then one turned south toward this very spot along Cleveland Avenue, and the other continued east on 31st, reconno reconnoitering for the accident. Oh, reconnoitering. I hope that's the pronunciation. It ought to be if it's not. I mean, it's spelled like that, but reconnoitering, what a word. Beat it, for God's sakes, all he is, whispered Hegland excitedly. Scatter! And forthwith, seizing Matilda Axelrod by the hand, he started to run east along 35th Street, in which the car then lay along the outlying eastern suburbs. But after a moment, deciding that that would not do either, that it would be too easy to pursue him along his street, he cut northeast, directly across the open fields, and away from the city. And now Clyde, as suddenly sensing what capture would mean, how all his fine thoughts of pleasure would most certainly end in disgrace and probably prison, began running also. Only in his case, instead of following Hegland or any of the others, he turned south along Cleveland Avenue toward the southern limits of the city. But like Hegland, Realizing that that meant an easy avenue of pursuit for anyone who chose to follow, he, too, took to the open fields. Only instead of running, running away from the city as before, he now turned southwest and ran toward those streets which lay to the south of 40th. Only much open space being before him before he should reach them, and a clump of bushes showing in the near distance, and the light of the motorcycle already sweeping the road behind him. He ran to that, and for the moment, dropped behind it. Only Sparser and Laura Sipe were left within the car, she at that moment beginning to recover consciousness, and the visiting stranger, much astounded, was left standing outside. Why the very idea, he suddenly said to himself. They must have stolen that car. It couldn't have belonged to them at all. Well, sure, it's a Packard. And these are just kids. Where, they, where does he think they got a Packard from? And just then, the first motorcycle reaching the scene, Clyde, from his not-too-distant hiding place, was able to overhear. Well, you didn't get away with it after all, did you? You thought you were pretty slick, but you didn't make it. You're the one we want. And what's become of the rest of the gang, eh? Where are they, eh? <laughs> <laughs> they all sound like, uh, what's his face? Edward G. Robinson. And it says A at the end, E-H, E-H. What's become of the rest of the gang, eh? Where are they, eh? <laughs> and hearing the suburbanite declare quite definitely that he had nothing to do with it, that the real occupants of the car had but then run away and might yet be caught if the police wished. Clyde, who was still within earshot of what was being said, began crawling upon his hands and knees, at first in the snow south, south and west, always towards some of those distant streets, which, lamplit and faintly glowing, he saw to the southwest of him, and among which presently 
If he were not captured, he hoped to hide, to lose himself, and so escape. If the fates were only kind, the misery and the punishment and the unending dissatisfaction and disappointment, which now, most definitely, it all represented to him. End of chapter 19. All right, let's take a quick break. Back in a moment on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back on Obscure, Clyde running for his life from Johnny Law. Well, you're just the man we wanted, see? Where are the rest of the gang, eh? And that concluded book one, by the way. We have now finished the first book of I don't know how many, maybe three or four, in an American tragedy. That's exciting, you guys. We get to start book two. I've got the page open, and, and it's entitled Book Two. So let's get right to it. Why don't we? Chapter 20. So I don't know what's going to happen to Clyde. Does he flee Kansas City altogether? Does he go to his uncle's factory there in the Northeast? Is this how we get him out of Kansas City? Because he's, he's running from the law? Although really, he's not, he didn't do anything. He's not an accomplice. He was in the car and will probably have to testify against his friend uh, and just tell the truth of what happened. But he, he's not guilty of anything. He didn't do anything except run away from the scene of an accident. And I don't even mean the first accident, because he, he just he was in the car, and, and what's his face? Hey, 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 don't bark, don't bark. The kid just took off. I mean, the dog just took off out of the room, getting ready to bark. But, I mean, the kid just took off from the accident, and it wasn't his fault. It wasn't his fault. Chapter 20. Aha! I've spotted the first sentence, and already I'm feeling prescient. The home of Samuel Griffiths in Lycurgus, New York right? A city of some 25,000 inhabitants, midway between Utica and Albany. So now we're at the uncle's house. We're with Samuel Griffiths, the rich uncle. He's got the factory. He makes shirt collars and waistcoats and what have you. I don't know what he makes. Clothes. Near the dinner hour, and by degrees the family assembling for its customary meal. 
On this occasion, the preparations were of a more elaborate nature than usual, owing to the fact that for the past four days, Mr. Samuel Griffiths, the husband and father, had been absent attending a conference of shirt and collar manufacturers in Chicago, price-cutting by upstart rivals in the West having necessitated compromise and adjustment by those who manufactured in the East. He was but now returned, and had telephoned earlier in the afternoon that he had arrived, and he was going to his office in the factory, where he would re uh, remain until dinner time. Well, can you imagine a more exciting conference than the shirt and collar conference in Chicago? Man, they must have talked about shirts and collars like you wouldn't believe with all those West Coast shirt and collar manufacturers trying to undercut the boys, the big boys in the East. Well, you got to recalibrate. And maybe, you know, if people aren't willing to compromise, well, you use a little muscle. You know, you, get, you hire some of that Chicago muscle to go out West and talk to the fellas. Make them understand that it's a big enough country. Everybody can work together to make shirts and collars. And if they don't understand, well, they might, op they might wake up one fine morning with a horse's head in their bed. Being long accustomed to the ways of a practical and convinced man who believed in himself and considered his judgment and his decision sound, almost final, for the most part anyhow, Mrs. Griffiths thought nothing of this. He would appear and greet her in due order, meaning, I guess, she didn't care that he went to the factory from Chicago. He doesn't need to come right home and give her a little peck on the, on the lips. He's got work to do. He's an industrialist. He's a man of the 20th century. He's a real Sammy Glick. Knowing that he preferred leg of lamb above many other things, after due word with Mr. Mrs. Truesdale, her homely but useful housekeeper, <laughs> she ordered lamb. How many books have we read now that have homely but useful housekeepers, I mean, uh, what's his, his, Frankenstein, the whole book was related to a trust, trusty but useful housekeeper, and uh, I guess Jude couldn't afford one. But, you know, Wuthering Heights, they had theirs. Oh, that's, that's who the book was told to, excuse me. I, I meant Wuthering Heights, not Frankenstein. But, you know, the Frankensteins, they grew up in luxury. They had their own, I'm sure, homely and trust, trusted housekeepers. How about we get, how about we get a, a, fucking sexy and trusted housekeeper every now and again, you know, like Schwarzenegger had, and he knocked her up, and then he lost his marriage, that's why you don't have sexy housekeepers, anywho, knowing that he preferred like a lamb, she got lamb, and the appropriate vegetables and dessert having been decided upon, she gave herself over to thoughts of her eldest daughter, Myra, who, having graduated from Smith College several years before, was still unmarried. And the reason for this, as Mrs. Griffiths well understood, though she was never quite willing to admit it openly, was that Myra was not very good-looking. <laughs> I, I feel like I know where this is heading already. I don't like that. I don't like getting ahead of the episode, uh, or of, of the story, I should say. So Myra clearly is being set up for Clyde. She's unmarried. She went to Smith. She's not that pretty. Clyde is her cousin. Cousins always get married in these books. That's all they do. Cousins are always marrying each other. That's just understood that that's the way it works with cousins. Her nose was too long, her eyes too close set, her chin 
not sufficiently rounded to give her a girlish and pleasing appearance. For the most part, she seemed too thoughtful and studious, as a rule not interested in the ordinary social life of that city. Neither did she possess that savoir-faire, let alone that peculiar appeal for men that characterized some girls even when they were not pretty. As her mother thought, she was really too critical and too intellectual, having a mind that was rather above the world in which she found herself. Well, Myra, I think... I don't know about you and Clyde. I mean, you don't seem particularly well-suited. I mean, Clyde is not particularly studious. He has no savoir-faire. He loves the social life of the city, and he is not particularly an intellectual, although I think it's fair to say that he has some latent intellectual prowess. We haven't seen much evidence of it yet, but I think we understand that he comes from a thoughtful family, and uh, although he hasn't pursued academics... There, you know, there's a certain amount of native intelligence to him, brought up amid comparative luxury, without having to worry about any of the rough details of making a living. She had been confronted, nevertheless, by the difficulties of making her own way in the matter of social favor and love, two objectives which, without beauty or charm, were about as difficult as the attaining to extreme wealth by a beggar. And the fact that for 12 years now, ever since she had been 14, she had seen the lives of other youths and maidens in this small world in which she moved, passing gaily enough, while hers was more or less confined to reading, music, the business of keeping as neatly and attractively arrayed as possible, and of going to visit friends, in the hope of possibly encountering somewhere, somehow, the one temperament who would be interested in her had saddened, if not exactly soured her. And that despite the fact that the material comfort of her parents and herself was exceptional. So yeah, man, I mean, money doesn't mean that much if you, if you don't have love, right? If you don't have love, what good is money? Well, pretty good. I would say it's pretty good, you know? can always buy love. You can't buy money. I don't know if that's true, if either of those statements are true, because in fact you can buy money and you probably cannot buy love, at least in the way that I mean. One cannot purchase an expansive heart. One can only purchase favor. Just now she had gone through her mother's room to her own, looking as though she were not very much interested in anything. Her mother had been trying to think of something to suggest that would take her out of herself, when the younger daughter, Bella, fresh from a passing visit to the home of the Finchleys, wealthy neighbors where she had stopped on her way from the Snedeker school, burst in upon her. Okay, so Bella burst in on the mother. She was at the Snedeker school. <laughs> That's a good name, the Snedeker school. S-N-E-D-E-K-E-R. I guess that's where she goes to school, with the rest of the Snedekers. Contrasted with her sister, who was tall and dark and rather sallow, Bella, though shorter, was far more gracefully and vigorously formed. 
She had thick brown, almost black hair, a brown and olive complexion tinted with red, and eyes brown and genial that blazed with an eager, seeking light. In addition to her sound and lithe physique, she possessed vitality and animation. Her arms and legs were graceful and active. Oh, she had graceful and active arms and legs. The hell is it? What the hell does that mean? <laughs> her arms were active. Her legs were active. What does that mean? She's mobile. What does that mean? Is she sitting in place pedaling an imaginary bicycle? What does it mean to say her arms and legs were active? I guess it just means she, she exercises a lot. Maybe it means she's toned. I don't know. Plainly, she was giving to liking things as she found them, enjoying life as it was. And hence, unlike her sister, she was unusually attractive to men and boys, to men and women, old and young, a fact which her mother and father well knew. No danger of any lack of marriage offers for her when the time came. As her mother saw it, too many youths and men were already buzzing around, and so posing the question of a proper husband for her. Already she had displayed a tendency to become thick and fast friends, not only with the scions of the older and more conservative families, who constituted the ultra-respectable element of the city, but also, and this was more to her mother's distaste, but the sons and daughters of some of those later, and hence socially less important families of the region, the sons and daughters of manufacturers of bacon, canning jars, vacuum cleaners, wooden and wickerware, and typewriters, who constituted a solid enough financial element in the city, but who made up what might be called the fast set in the local life. In Mrs. Griffith's opinion, there was too much dancing, cabareting, automobiling to one city and another without due social supervision. Yet, as a contrast to her sister Myra, what a relief. It was only from the point of view of proper surveillance, or until she was safely and religiously married, that Mrs. Griffith's troubled or even objected to most of her present contacts and yearnings in gaieties. She decided, she desired to protect her. All right, so looks like we're, we've got a wrinkle, all right? We've got Myra and we've got Bella. And we know Clyde's on his way. In one fashion or another, Clyde is on his way. And in one fashion or another, both girls will meet his gaze. Both cousins will have some relationship with him. What it will be, we don't know. I mean, clearly we know that Clyde will find himself drawn to Bella. We know that, and we suspect, perhaps, that Myra will find herself drawn to Clyde. But will Clyde ever reciprocate the feelings to, to Myra? I suspect not, hence setting up a further American tragedy. With luck, they will all be dead within 50 pages, although I doubt it very much. One of them will become his wife, I know that. I don't know if it'll be Bella or Myra, but one of them will become his wife. I suspect Myra. I mean, I suspect Bella, somehow, because Bella is not the same snob. I mean, she's cavorting with the, the sons of bacon manufacturers, for God's sake. So, surely, she'll have the time of day for Clyde. 
she'll enjoy Clyde, you know, he's, he's a sweet kid and she'll like that, you know. But then we've got Myra skulking in the background, looking at Clyde with her buzzard eyes going, what about me? What about me? Personally, I'm more attracted to Myra. That's more my speed. Quiet, introspective, you know, nerdy girl, wearing black dress, Doc Martin boots, smart, you know, probably going to take over the shirt and collar business at some point. That's the gal for me. I don't need some flighty Bella the ball, Bella the ball, who wants to go dancing and have gaieties and drink absinthe and what have you. Not, not for me, thanks. Give me tall, sallow Myra. But I'm not in the book. And as it happens, I am already married. And I think uh, 26, which is Myra's age, is probably a little too young for me in my advanced years. So we don't know what's going to happen with Clyde, but I've already decided that as, as much as I would like to, I cannot propose an offer of marriage to Myra. I, and I apologize for that, but I just don't think it would be right. I would have to leave my own wife, my own children, move to Utica to take over a shirt and collar business. I, I don't, frankly, I don't have any experience in it. And frankly, Utica is a dump. Back then, perhaps it was a nice bustling manufacturing city. Right now, it's a dump. Anyhow, let's leave it there. We're set. Oh, I heard a motorcycle go by. We're setting up a whole thing. A whole menage a trois. Well, I guess it's not really a menage a trois, but whatever. A love triangle. Yeah, I'm excited to see what happens. I'm excited to see how all this plays out and the tragedies that unfurl. And uh, we'll, we'll find it out on another scandalous yeah let's go with scandalous scandalous episode of obscure but until then i wish you adieu this season of obscure is produced by me michael ian black and robin lynn our theme music is by craig wedgerin if you listen and like this show please help us out with a rating and a review we want to be obscure but not that obscure it's an easy way to support the show thanks